And we're back with another episode of the Whole Brother Mission podcast. Hello to everyone. Uh, I am fresh off the presidential debate, but I'm going to keep my thoughts to myself. We have something more important to talk about. Uh, I have a very special guest, another professor out in California, Dr. Olajide Bamashigbin. He is the assistant professor of psychology at California State University, Long Beach. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing so well. Uh, thanks for having me here today. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. I'm, I'm glad to have you. As you know, the Whole Brother Mission has an emphasis on mental health. Uh, and of course, there's an overlap there with psychology. Uh, I actually found out about you through a tweet uh, where you were, uh, you know, working, uh, I guess, teleworking. And mm -hmm. then your uh, your boys wanted to be a lot closer to you even though there was a, a completely open couch. <laughs> completely open couch, yep. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just the imagery of it is a lot of type of stuff that we support. Um, we put a lot of, try to put positive images out there about black fatherhood, family dynamics, and, and you know, family support, and uh, good interpersonal relationships. But in many cases, uh, the type of information we're putting out there is coming from those that are in private practice, that are doing one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions we have a network of partner counselors but what i thought was interesting is uh, many assume that if you are if you've done a doctorate in some type of psychology work that you're doing one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions that's, and that's not mm -hmm. actually the case for you you're focused on the research side and teaching at that's a right. university so if you could kind of bring us in on your area of study and the courses you're teaching what what is a uh, and also, um, before you even became a professor, uh, your, your Ph.D. work. Absolutely. Uh, once again, thanks for having me. Um, you know, uh, I received my B.A. in psychology from the University of Miami. I received my Ph.D. in health psychology from UCLA. And my research has really generally focused on the predictors and outcomes of paternal depression for fathers and their families, right? So mm. what is paternal depression? What does it look like? When are fathers most likely to experience it? Um, and how does it affect fathers themselves as well as, as mothers and kids, right? Because we know it's something that really impacts the entire family unit. Uh, I generally do survey methods as well. Sometimes I'll bring people into the lab and we could do interviews. Um, and I really focus on the interplay between mental health and physical health. Um, in addition, you know, as you said, I teach at California State University, Long Beach, um, and classes I teach include health psychology, psychology of stress, and previously I've taught positive psychology, racial ethic, minority mental health, social psych, and so many other different types of psychology. Yes. So you originally, when we kind of were debriefing, you told me that you weren't necessarily set on this path, that you were studying cancer at first. How'd you end up switching over? That's right. Uh, right. So I originally, you know, like I said, I got, I went to University of Miami to get my BA. And while I was at the University of Miami, I joined a lab with a professor to, you know, kind of do research to get ready for grad school. And that advisor was focused on cancer. So a lot of my early work really was focused on the experiences of cancer survivors and cancer caregivers, right? So what is it like to have cancer? How does it affect you? How does it affect the people around you? How does it affect your mental health? Um, and then I got to grad school and I was still focused on cancer, okay? I was really focused on this area, but 
you know, I was waiting on some data to run this project and it just took a really long time. So I had a secondary advisor come in and say, here, do some work on fathers, right? And I really just thought, okay, I'm just gonna do this project and get back to my cancer work, right? But, you know, we did that project, we wrote a paper, you know, people were really interested in it. Uh, and a little while later, I became a father myself and now I'm a father of two boys. Um, and, you know, this is how now become my area of research that I love. Definitely. Well, that's a, an interesting turn of events, but I'm glad that you ended mm -hmm. up focusing in on that area. As as many know, we recently released a, a book called Whole Brother, Debunking Domestic Break the Black Family. And it is a very mm -hmm. uh, strategically written book with an emphasis on fatherhood and, and family dynamics. Um, mm -hmm. We actually begin the book with discussing four different types of fathers. And, you know, mm -hmm. you and I have had a chance to talk about that a little bit, but um, I do want to kind of underscore the points with maybe seeing what you've seen in your research. So, mm -hmm. as I said, we start the book with four different types of fathers, and I heard you mention uh, paternal uh, depression. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know some that we spoke about were the idea of uh, uh, the present but emotionally distant father. That was mm -hmm. one of the fathers I explained where many of us mm -hmm. uh, as black men, and I mean, I'm talking about our context, but I'm sure this can appear in any racial group, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. idea of a father... Uh, being physically present in the home, but having mm -hmm. difficulty connecting with others in the household on an emotional level. Right. Um, in the book, we list something called the communication pyramid. And it essentially uh, categorizes communication in a way where uh, at the top of the communication pyramid is surface level communication, cliches, facts, and things of that nature. Somewhere in mm -hmm. the middle, you get to opinions and then at the bottom is sharing who you are uh, mm -hmm. and feelings and sharing who you are. And the argument mm -hmm. I'm making is that a lot of times, even in father-son dynamics amongst men, we end up staying at the top of the pyramid, just sharing facts and cliches. Hey, what's mm -hmm. up? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Or just saying, you know, the, the Falcons won last night, just sharing the facts mm -hmm. about the football game. But we don't really go beyond that. And my argument is that, we end up robbing ourselves of deep interpersonal relationship and that Absolutely. then trains our sons to begin to, to, to not really have spaces to be fully transparent. Now I'm not mm -hmm. advocating for just tell your business in the streets, but I do think uh, as men, we could do better at building deep interpersonal relationships amongst ourselves. Because one thing we found uh, at the whole of the mission is a lot of times uh, there are two things that happen. Uh, women, come recommending that their boyfriend or spouse go to therapy because mm -hmm. he seems like he has a wall up you know mm -hmm. they're, they're they're married you know very deeply intimate but it's hard to connect in conversation on a deep level that would be mm -hmm. the argument of the of the wife or uh girlfriend and mm -hmm. the other thing is that sometimes some women feel held hostage when they go or, or feel guilty when they go out with their friends because their boyfriend or husband doesn't have friends that, or a social group the way they do. Wow. I wanted mm -hmm. to know, do you, am I just making all this up or is there anything uh, that you might've seen in your research that might connect with any of these ideas that I'm articulating? No, absolutely. So, you know, as a researcher who cares about mental health and depression, you know, I always want to be the first to say, listen, therapy is important, right? It's good for you. Go. 
take care of yourself, you know, take care of your, your mentals and you'll be fine. You know, I've gone to therapy myself, you know, and I'm, I'm open about it. I don't have any shame surrounding it. Right. So there are many men who, you know, who've suffered through traumas in their lives, right. Who've suffered through so many different things, um, who are resistant to the idea of, you know, going to therapy and that, is something that could really help them. So that's really that that's that's absolutely true, right? Um, and particularly, I think you know when we're talking about uh, men of color and black men, you know, uh, there's a long history of kind of you know psychology in these fields not necessarily treating us the way we should be. So there's a little mistrust going on there with regards to not going, right? But um, you know, it's I think it's always important that you know men go. And to your point about the emotional distance, right, um, you know, I have a paper that I published. Actually, it was the first paper that I published um, where we looked at black fathers, you know, a sample of black fathers. And we found that fathers who were more depressed experienced two things, okay, over and above everything else. One of them was racism. So they experienced more frequent experiences of racism and they were more likely to be depressed after that, right? That probably doesn't come as a shock to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, two... Fathers who engaged in more avoidant coping were more likely to show depression, depressive symptoms, right? So, you know, we all deal with stress, right? If you're not stressed, you're, you're dead, right? That's just a fact of life. We all deal with stress, but it matters how we deal with it, right? And if we're talking about the context of a baby or a child, right? you know, your baby's crying, you can't just ignore the baby. It's not going to get any better, right? Your child's acting up. You can't avoid the situation, right? It's only going to get worse. So there's absolutely some truth to the idea of, you know, that that distance or that that avoidance from, you know, kind of the tough situations impacting your mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. So in addition to that, uh, we also mm -hmm. talked about, I think, the, the toxic father. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you seen? And just for those that don't know, the toxic father is... Uh, a, a father that is passing on unhealthy thinking or behaviors mm -hmm. onto the child. You know, a lot of times mm -hmm. we think of parents in terms of the ones leading the way. Uh, once again, this father is present, but he's leading in a bad direction. Any mm -hmm. thoughts on that? I, I, you know, absolutely. So I, like, like I said, my, my, my area is paternal depression, so I'll always bring it back to that, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about what depression is and how it affects you, right, um, it's impacting your sleep, uh, it's impacting your, uh, your, uh, your health behaviors, um, depending, you may be engaging in some substance use more than you should, right, because you're depressed and you're trying to cope with it, uh, you know, you're dealing with uh, relationship issues with your partner or your your child's mother, right? Perhaps because of, you know this depression and all of these things, right? Children are sponges, right? They mm -hmm. they see it, they absorb all this, right? So these same things that you're doing because you have things that you really need to work out, right? Things that you need to deal with, you potentially could be passing on to your child, right? Because they see, oh, you know, your sleep your sleep is messed up. You're not eating how you should be, right? Your kids. You know, kids never listen to you, but they never fail to imitate you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to zoom in and I already that, you know, <laughs> a title just jumped out to me and I was like, you know, it could mm -hmm. be daddy. Daddy was depressed uh, because, <laughs> you know, a lot of times I think I found that a lot of black fathers around late 40s, 50s, they finally have a chance to breathe. Mm -hmm. And look back on what they may or may not have done right in terms of their parenting and their own life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of men who live kind of wild lifestyles from teens mm-hmm. into the 40s. And then somewhere in the 40s, 50s, they might come to some particular faith system and start mm-hmm. to live a more peaceful life. And while I'm glad that people can find faith systems that give them a level of peace in their lifestyle, mm-hmm. I hate that mm-hmm. it happens so late. Right. You know, I hate that uh, there are their children got the worst of them rather than the best of right. them. Right. Uh, but I don't want to look at that from a condemning perspective. Uh, I want to try to be supportive and understand, well, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I'll admit, even in my personal life, I'm looking around, I'm seeing a lot of of the same cycles for people mm-hmm. at different mm-hmm. points in the spectrum. They might be in their mm-hmm. 20s, still in that wild phase, might be in their 30s, starting to realize this ain't it. And they might be mm-hmm. in their 40s, 50s, like, yeah, I'm just, I'm relaxing now and staying out of trouble. Uh, right. But I'm seeing it at its different levels in the spectrum. And although I'm not uh, a doctor, I'm very uh, versed in uh, mental health by way of the whole mm-hmm. remission and my studies doing a doctorate right. counseling now. For sure. And I'm not trying Great. To, you know, I can't diagnose anybody, but I feel like I see a lot of depression mm-hmm. um, undiagnosed. And mm-hmm. I, as a friend, in many cases are like, hey, man, you know, you might want to get that checked out. One thing I see mm-hmm. a lot is is guys uh, calling it introversion. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, I'm seeing social isolation as a result of depression. Mm-hmm. So if you could speak to just to, to give us an understanding, uh, could you define what is depression, actually? Because I know some think of it as just feeling sad. Uh, mm-hmm. So so what is depression uh, mm-hmm. from a technical sense? And then mm-hmm. what are some signs of it? Great. So that, that's, a, that's a great question. Right? So depression is essentially prolonged feelings of sadness. Right. And there's a very specific criteria that you have to meet to be diagnosed with depression, right? So you have to have been feeling a certain number of symptoms like eating too much or not eating enough, um, sleeping too much or not sleeping enough, feelings of irritability, feelings of sadness, feelings of like wanting to die, you know, all these different types of things for at least half of the day for two weeks, Hmm. right? So that is the technical definition of, all right, if you go to a therapist and they ask you all these questions and you answer the truthfully and you're depressed they'll say that you've had a depressive episode so that is that is absolutely what it looks like and that's the general clinical definition but i think the reality is depression looks different in men and than it does in women (laughs) right Hmm. you know so if we're thinking about sadness and the way sadness plays out right um the way sadness is in men and the way sadness is in women is very different right um and you know there's a lot of social and cultural things that go into that right like for example um oftentimes women feel men men don't feel like they can cry yeah right men don't feel like they could cry right so what do they do that turns into rage right that turns into irritability that turns into those kinds of things right um so in that sense it just looks totally different not totally different but it often looks very different for men and women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of fathers, uh, I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, black men in general, but specifically fathers, there's this idea where we can't cry, we can't show emotion. And mm-hmm. something I articulate in the book is, in many cases, we only feel permitted to express one area on the spectrum mm-hmm. of emotion, and mm-hmm. that's anger. It's yep. okay to be angry. It's okay to blow up. But anything else, mm-hmm. you know, we're stepping outside of our bounds. Uh, mm-hmm. But... I think once again, 
it's important to recognize that even though your father or we see fathers as heroes, they're human too. Absolutely. Um, and they can't just magically create things. You know, a pandemic right. has happened. Many fathers have lost their jobs. And as mm -hmm. much as we would like to just create another one, it's a lot of times it's not that simple. Um, you, right. can, you can start a business during a pandemic, but there's no guarantee mm -hmm. that that business is going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So especially for black people, especially for black people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so while we can be pro entrepreneurship and pro the black dollar and so on and so forth, sometimes there are circumstances that happen that are out of your control. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know all the more for fathers who are expected to protect and provide. Although mm -hmm. I articulate a more nuanced and in-depth view of fatherhood that goes beyond protecting and providing, those mm -hmm. are still expectations. Um, and of course, during Absolutely. a pandemic, some men's inability to provide like they used to can depress mm -hmm. them. So could you speak mm -hmm. to how do we su support fathers who may be in a depressive episode or who may mm -hmm. be exhibiting signs and trying to get them toward getting help? Because... I know that many men feel trapped because it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not doing well, but I have to keep mm -hmm. going. I'm going to explode. Mm -hmm. I, I, absolutely. So you, you've made, you hit on so many really good points, right? Um, so, you know, the reality is I think for a, a lot of us who may consider ourselves progressive, we kind of have a, a more evolved view of what fatherhood really is and what it could be right and mm -hmm. it's really about you know loving and supporting your kids and loving and supporting your your partner or your parents mother whether you're together or not whether you're a child's mother whether you're together or not right and that's what it is but um in reality a, a lot of a, a lot of fathers still view it as listen my job is to provide point blank period right as a mm -hmm. father your job is to provide for your kids and provide for your uh your wife or your partner or your child's right mother right um, you know, we're currently undergoing a, a pandemic, right, where people are losing jobs and a lot of jobs are not even coming back when, when, when this is all said and done, they're not coming back. Right. Um, so that really can strike a blow to many men's, you know, self-esteem and what they understood as their role as fathers. Right. Because I, I feel like I'm a good father, not, not necessarily me, but somebody might feel like I'm a good father because I make sure my family's provided for. Right. My kids eat every day my, they, they have clothes they have all these things um and not being able to do these things for your family um you know can mess with yourself right and mess with your self-image right and you're like well, well who who am i what role do i have in this family anymore if i can't even do this most basic understanding of what fathers are supposed to do um and recently i had a paper published um where i found that fathers who were more involved with their kids shortly after the birth of their child, show less depression a year later, mm -hmm. right? So the people who engage with their kids more, right? Um, and specifically, we looked at it in terms of spending time with your kids, right? So fathers who spent more time with their kids, fathers who provided more actually for their kids as in terms of money, food, toys, clothing, supplies, and fathers who just generally felt like, hey, I can handle all the different task that fatherhood throws at me right like i could change a diaper no problem i could warm up a bottle no problem mm -hmm. um and all those things were related to less depression so yeah yeah so i get a little bit of a flack for this especially when you consider mm -hmm. the culture in california that's very mm -hmm. uh very pro-weed um mm -hmm. i uh argue in the book that many of us 
uh, use distractions as solutions. Mm-hmm. And the issue with that is distractions are temporary, but the issue mm-hmm. can still persist even though mm-hmm. when you're done with the distraction. And my mm-hmm. point is that some of the distractions that we use are uh, drugs, specifically weed, um, mm-hmm. uh, alcohol, um, sex, and mm-hmm. gaming, actually, which I have found mm-hmm. is, is on the rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most, the ones... I get the most pushback on are the substances because most people just mm-hmm. say, well, I can stop whenever I want. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. a little weed. It's natural. It's mm-hmm. from the earth. Or I just like drinking. Mm-hmm. I just drink socially. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a story about why they do what they do. And I'm not anti mm-hmm. anything completely. But what I am mm-hmm. saying is those things are not sufficient. If there is a mm-hmm. deeper issue that is yet to be resolved. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, uh, I found that people that use these things think that they're just doing it for leisure. When in actuality, when you dig a little bit deeper, there are some unresolved issues in your life. Mm-hmm. I even boldly mm-hmm. say that I think almost 100 percent of the people that I know personally mm-hmm. that that smoke weed regularly, the ones that I know personally also have unresolved trauma. That's mm-hmm. just my experience. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mm-hmm. paint with a broad brush. In your mm-hmm. research, do you see a connection between depression and those substances, specifically marijuana or alcohol? So absolutely. So remember when I told you how I did that study where I found that fathers who use more avoidant coping were more likely to mm-hmm. feel depressed? One of those measures in that avoidant coping was substance use. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so specifically, fathers will say, yeah, I use drugs to numb my feelings. Right. I use alcohol to take my mind away from, you know, these problems that I'm facing. So absolutely, um, you know, substance use and substance, you know, and there's a difference between substance use and substance abuse. Right. And obviously the vast majority of people who use substances use them fine, relatively safely. It's no problem. Right. Um, But these things absolutely is a form of avoiding the stressors that you're dealing with. Right. Because like you said, at the end of the day, the problem's still going to be there. You're going to wake up the next morning, you know, with a hangover. And now you have a hangover and a problem. The same problem. Right. Right. (laughs) As opposed to actively dealing with whatever the uh, whatever the actual issue is. Right. Um, And, you know, obviously easier said than done. You know, like, oh, just deal with, you know, years and years of pent up, you know, trauma and abuse and racism and, you know, whatever. Right. It's not it's not like it's easy. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it's difficult to find the right language, find the right therapist for it. It's hard, but absolutely, these are forms of of, of avoidance, right? Mm-hmm. And avoidance, and there's a lot of research on this. In the short term, avoidance is okay, right? It's not bad for you, right? But over time, those problems will still be there. Yeah. They'll still be there. Right. Yeah. So you know, being a podcast that uh, has an or an organization that has an emphasis on men. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's important once again to be more progressive and more have more mm-hmm. common conversations about about sex as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in many cases we have those things, but that's the reality for, for most most men's lives. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think talking about it more is helpful. So, mm-hmm. like I said, another one of the uh, distractions I listed was was sex. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to move away from it in that category and ask you a question about what you've seen in terms of depression and sex drive. Because something I have found is that most times people don't notice that anything's wrong. And once Mm -hmm. again, in some cases, I think that 
in, in many different people's situations, it was when uh, sad moments turned into not even wanting to have sex anymore, which was mm-hmm. abnormal for whoever said guy is. That ends mm-hmm. up being like, okay, um, I can tell something's off now, and especially if they have a mm-hmm. partner who they normally were very active with, if they get to a point where they just don't want to be bothered, it mm-hmm. ends up being two people's problem rather than one person's mm-hmm. problem. And that right. gets people's attention on, hey, is something really wrong here? It's just, you know, mm-hmm. it becomes more than that. And the other thing is uh, I have, I have in my own research, have seen that there ends up being a, um, it's described as connecting depression with reckless decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, or dangerous behaviors risk-taking be risk-taking yes and it can be played out a lot of different ways but once again i've seen it in terms of uh sexual partners just kind of being kind of uh less protective less cautionary mm-hmm. in terms of who and how you are are having sex for you have you seen any connection between depression and and uh sex life Absolutely. So in in my own research, I have not studied that. Right. But um, in just the body of research, there's undoubtedly a connection between these two things. Right. And, you know, and this and this is the thing about depression. It can turn it into both ways. Right. It can turn you into kind of like. uh, uh, I want to find the right words to say this. Um, Somebody who engages in far more risky sexual behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So increased number of partners, right. less likely to use safe sex practices, or just somebody who just doesn't have sex at all, right? <laughs> right, right. And and you know when we're once again when we're thinking about what depression is like, like in in a household, right? In a household, who wants to have sex with this person who's angry all the time in the house, right? You know, so it, it kind of it kind of yeah. does it, it's a, it's a it's a cycle. It's a self fulfilling mm. cycle. Right. I'm not having sex because I'm depressed because I'm depressed. I'm not having sex. And it just and it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know for many, depression seems like this thing that we can't quite wrap our minds or hands around. What is mm-hmm. it? It seems mm-hmm. very fluid uh, mm-hmm. for you. How would you explain? How does it how does it start? Um, because in many cases, there are people that are, quote unquote, normal. And mm-hmm. then something changes in that person, mm-hmm. and then you later mm-hmm. on find out it's depression. Mm-hmm. So is this, mm-hmm. is it really just one bad experience that mm-hmm. alters a person this dramatically? Like, what mm-hmm. is behind the onset of depression? Right, that's a really good question. So there, there is, there's a bunch of risk factors for depression, right? Like we could spend thirty years talking about the different risk factors for depression. Um, you know, but there's definitely a genetic component to it, right? So, you know, if you're have a family member, a, a mother, a father, a sibling who is depressed, you're more likely to be depressed. So that's a part of it. Um, but there's a big component of just environment and experiences, right? So people who've experienced trauma as children more likely to be depressed, right? Um, you know, people who've experienced trauma as adolescents, you know, people who experience poverty, right? Poverty is a big factor associated with depression. Growing up in poverty, less likely to, you know, less likely to have food, um, you know, assault, abuse, like the, the whole gamut of things, right, are associated with it. Um, and fathers specifically, the, so I'll say this, there's two strongest predictors of depression in fathers, okay, specifically. The first one is being depressed before, 
right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you're depressed before, you're more likely to be depressed again. The mm-hmm. other one, um, what do you think it is? If I were to ask you, what do you think it is? Uh, discontentment. Maternal depression. Oh, mom. Moms, right? Mm-hmm. So that so that's the other thing, you know. Moms and dads' depression are intimately connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because oftentimes, and not for everybody, you're living in this house with this person, right? And they're depressed and they're behaving in a certain way. You're depressed and you're behaving in a certain way. And those two things, you know, it's yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah, and that becomes even harder to find out mm-hmm. if the generation before didn't have the luxury of sitting mm-hmm. down and getting a mental health evaluation to get diagnosed right. with depression. Right. You know, I've found that many of us rebrand traumatic experiences as just us coming up the rough side of the mountain. And we take mm-hmm. pride in it rather than mm-hmm. realizing, well, no, that was a traumatic experience that damaged mm-hmm. you and every other area mm-hmm. of your life. Um, mm-hmm. So in many cases, we don't even get to the point of talking about it that way because mm-hmm. uh, we say that these are the things that make us strong, not the things mm-hmm. that make us depressed. Uh, mm-hmm. to help to help us have a better understanding of this i i do see the word uh trauma being mm-hmm. used a lot more uh those mm-hmm. in progressive spaces uh say trauma say toxic say mm-hmm. let's normalize mm-hmm. this uh there are mm-hmm. certain things that are you know being said more but i don't want us to be trained by social media but actually by the research mm-hmm. and the proper mm-hmm. language so mm-hmm. What's the difference between just having a bad experience and mm-hmm. a traumatic experience? That, that's a really good question. So the actual technical definition of trauma, okay? So the one that I, I understand, because I, I want to acknowledge that there are always different people who have yeah. different you know, views on it. The one that I've understood and that, like I think the APA goes by is it's the risk of serious bodily injury or death. Right. So if you're in a situation where you're at risk of these things, then it can be considered a traumatic event. Right. Mm-hmm. A car accident where you could really be seriously injured. Right. Um, experiencing, you know, physical abuse or sexual abuse where you could really hurt yourself or, you know, die. Right. These are that's the technical definition of trauma. Right. But, you know, there are other things that are just stressors. Right. And that's and, and a stressor is just anything that can stress you out. Right. Mm -hmm. And a stressor can be anything from, you know, uh, my kid poured milk on the floor. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. To, you know, traumatic stressors. Mm -hmm. Right. Which are traumatic stressors, you know, and even a death in the family. Uh, But so let me let me take that back. So even traumatic stressors. Right. So um, but the thing is, that definition of serious bodily injury or death doesn't I, I, personally, I don't think it fully captures the extent of what trauma is, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're a child and your parent dies, right, um, you know, sure, maybe you're at not technically at risk of serious bodily injury or death, but that's traumatic, yeah. <laughs> right? That, I, I don't think anybody will argue that that's not a traumatic life experience that's going to shape you for the rest of your life, right? Um, but yeah, that's that's my understanding of the technical definition of it. Okay. Uh, I know I'm kind of getting outside of what we discussed, but have you looked into PTSD at all? I have not looked into PTSD. Okay. 
I, I find it to be so, so interesting, right? Um, and of course, it's it's connected to depression, right? Like PTSD yeah. and depression and anxiety, they're things that co-occur a lot, right? So right. you're more likely to have the other if you have one. But I have not particularly to that. Okay. Outside of depression, uh, uh, what do you think are uh, ways where... I guess fathers uh, may be suffering outside of just trying to say, you know, you're diagnosed with depression. Um, I guess what are some ways we can look to be more supportive uh, of people in that role? Um, Because them having an issue may not Mm -hmm. be seen in symptoms of depression that might be seen in another way. So what are some Mm -hmm. things to look for? And then how can you be supportive after um, recognizing that once again, considering that mm-hmm. you can't necessarily approach dad if you think mm-hmm. something's wrong the same way you do the youngest son in the house. It's a right. very unique role too. So mm-hmm. balancing respect and support. That's 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 a really good question. I think, you know, I think there are a lot of different, you know, routes to go about it, right? So one is that, you know, and particularly for Black dads, and and I'm sure you talk about this, there's a lot of negative stereotypes about Black fathers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, deadbeat, absent, this, that, right? Um, Negative, negative stereotypes. And while, of course, there are fathers who are absent or deadbeats, right? Those stereotypes are far overblown, okay? There was a study by the CDC which found that actually... Compare, regardless of living with the kid or not living with the kid, black dads are the most involved fathers, right? In comparison to Latino dads and white dads, mm-hmm. right? So it's important that, you know, we keep that in mind when we're thinking about dads, right? So that we're not stigmatizing them by stereotyping them, right? Right. Um, what was the rest of the question? Sorry, I forgot. Just and, uh, uh, what are some some warning signs, some things to look for that may be cause for concern? And then after you okay. see those, how do you support? OK, uh, so I think it's also important. So in addition to not stereotyping dads, I, I think it's important to always start with the assumption that people love their kids. Right. Like I, I, I always start with the assumption that you love your kids and you want what's best for your kids. That's different than knowing necessarily the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But you right. do love your kids and you want the best for your kids. Yeah. So starting there, um, I think support groups for dads are really important. Right. So a space for dads to talk about kind of the issues that, you know, we're they're, they're an open space for fathers to talk about the issues that they're dealing with. Right. Um, and particularly, I think black fathers and the issues that black fathers particularly deal with. Right. Um, you know, a lot of the risk factors for depression, like I said, previ- being previously depressed and having a mom who's dep- and having a female partner who's depressed, right? Those are the strongest things, but um, job loss is a big factor, right? So, you know, supporting dads, you know, in a time like this, right? Where, you know, I, I lost my job, right? And, and and that provider role is very important, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a father myself. And even I, once again, I like to think of myself as a progressive person. I, I pride myself on my ability to provide for my family. Mm-hmm. Right. Along even with my still. wife, like I, yeah. even even still. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that. That is that is an important role that I take on in the family. So, you know, a lot lots so millions and millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Right. So let's have compa- some compassion there. You know, understanding that, you know, the re- experiences of racism. Right. Lead to an increase in depression over time. 
right? So being aware that, wow, like, you know, being mistreated at the bank, you know, mm-hmm. being followed around here, that negatively impacts impacts you, right? Uh, you know, just general stress. All these things are all wrapped up in understanding, um, you know, what depression is like involves in, in understanding it and knowing that if these things happen, there are ways to support them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about uh, this field of mental health having some layers of racism and stereotyping and not treating us well, and that Mm -hmm. being a hang-up for some people Mm -hmm. in pursuing Mm -hmm. mental health Mm -hmm. services. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically, because, I mean, I I know, I I have some things off the top of my head that I can think of, too. Mm -hmm. Um, What are are some instances of how it could be a system that's damaging toward us? Uh, But then also, could you speak to although we're acknowledging that this is an issue, uh, how to work past the concern or fear of that and still get the help that's needed. That's why, by way of the Whole Brother Mission, we want to provide mm-hmm. culturally competent therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where, right. you know, the last interview uh, was with Shauna Murray Brown, who is mm-hmm. uh, LCSW, who is... Uh, working on her PhD as well. And Great. she uh, has an emphasis on, she trains therapists. She has a lead sessions on decolonizing therapy. Great. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but right. we do want right. to acknowledge uh, the issues, but then right. seek out a holistic approach. I, 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 no, absolutely. Right. So I think what you said about cultural competency, you stole the words right out of my mouth. That was exactly what I was going to say is the thing. Right. Race matching with therapists, gender matching with therapists plays such a difference. Right. Like feeling like a therapist can understand you. Right. Like they've been they, they, they know exactly what you're talking about without you having to fully explain. It. That's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, there's been there's a long history of mistrust between, you know, the establishment and, you know, black people in particular. Yeah. So the APA, right, the American Psychological Association, that's our big association, right, founded by 26 white men, right, um, some of whom were eugenicists, mm-hmm. right? Like if we're thinking about IQ tests, right, IQ tests still, you know, very much used in our field today, historically, were, were originally designed to be normed for white men. Right. And white men's experiences. And then they use these scores to justify that, hey, black people are inferior to white people. Right. Mm -hmm. Scores on this test that was designed for white men. Right. We're using how people just scoring it to say, oh, well, you need this. You need that. You're not eligible for this. You're not eligible for that. Uh, You know, Tuskegee Institute study. That's one thing that's talked about all the time. Right. Where um, they didn't inject black men with syphilis, but they let them have syphilis, and even when a treatment was available, didn't give them the, um, didn't give them the treatment, right? So there's just a long history of distrust between black mm-hmm. people and the caregivers, caregivers in general, yeah. yeah. Right, right. So, you know, um, so I, 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 I will never discount that, and I'll never discount anybody's experiences, because I've had people tell me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's white people stuff, right? That's that's dangerous stuff. They're gonna try to, you know, whatever me. And I yeah. always want to acknowledge that that's a real concern. Absolutely. But there are black therapists, right? There are so many black pr- providers out there who are willing to provide for you as a black person if that's what you need, mm-hmm. right? If you feel like that's important. Um, so, like you like you mentioned, cultural competency, right? Having having a provider who understands your experiences changes the game. 
Definitely. Well, I think we've had a, a great conversation here. Very insightful. Um, right. Once again, I always want to highlight the fact that we do, because I, I just think uh, it's weird because we still live in a time where we're acknowledging such and such is the first black person to do, you know, right. uh, but there are a lot of black people already penetrating certain spaces and, and doing mm -hmm. major work. So we always want to highlight that. So I thank you for coming at it from the research, the research side. Is there any chance that could, that you could possibly ever find yourself in private practice? Uh, well, first I want to thank you for having me. And I want to say mm -hmm. that whole brother mission is doing some important work and I applaud you. And right after this, I'm putting in a donation. So keep doing what y'all are doing. Well, much okay? appreciated. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I, I cannot lie and say that it has not crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So in fact, <laughs> I could tell when it came to grad school, it was between UCLA and the program that I chose, which is all research and University of Michigan, which was a clinical PhD program. Right. Yeah. And I took this road and at least once a week, I found myself going back down. I'm like, what would have happened if I would have went to Michigan right. and got my PhD in clinical? Right. So, you know, never say never. OK, definitely. Well, once again, I thank you. Thank you for your time. I am proud thank of myself uh, for getting um, your name right the first time. <laughs> I truly yep. try to do that. Um, <laughs> so um, I appreciate that. And. Uh, one more thing I, I wanted to, to highlight before we go. So I am, uh, as I said, I'm in my doctoral program right now, but I'm doing uh, EDD and counseling. Uh, Great. I work in university spaces and mm -hmm. I know a lot of PhD professors and see, I've seen people go through PhD programs and I've seen them kind of decline, like <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> just mm -hmm. through the stress of it. And it kind of deterred me. Um, mm -hmm. I was the person who didn't even want to go to college at first. And I somehow mm -hmm. kept finding my way doing more and more. So now I'm in an EDD mm -hmm. program. Great. And I just had a counselor telling me much older, uh, you know, had a, had a grandma type feel to it. So I, mm -hmm. I received it. She was like, mm -hmm. that EDD is fine, but I want more black men with PhDs. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, I ain't switching my program, <laughs> but, <Right. laughs> um, you know, but I respect that, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you just from an educational perspective, could you uh, say why you chose the Ph.D. route? And if you see any significance with, with mm -hmm. us pursuing pursuing higher education, one, I can just say from my time in university space, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is an underrepresentation in the particular mm -hmm. type of college mm -hmm. realm that I was in. There was mm -hmm. maybe one or two black professors. Right, right. Um, so I do see the need for it. I want to create mm -hmm. avenues for others to do it. I don't think I'm that right. guy to do PhD work, but mm -hmm, I'm, mm -hmm. I want to encourage others to do it so that mm -hmm. we can be in these spaces. As mm -hmm. a uh, professor, can you speak to the educational journey of African-American men, your experience mm -hmm. and your thoughts on higher level uh, education? You know, I think it's important to... I mean, so, so I have a PhD and it's worked out very well for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I always want to start with that. Um, it's worked out very well for me and my family and I feel so blessed. Right. Um, so, you know, like I said, I was, I was originally nursing, right. But my high school science wasn't good. Mm -hmm. You know, my high school science wasn't good. So I said, Oh man, I got to do a different field. So already, you know, that the, the first week of college, 
right? The very first week of college, I already had an, an experience that made me go, ooh, I'm not, I, I got I got to change because, you know, the things that Black people experience in high school and whatever is, is so complicated. Went to Miami, went to, you know, UCLA, and I, I it, 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 you're in an ADD program. It was hard, you know, it was extremely hard. But um, I think one of the important aspects of it, it's allowed me to be in the room for important decisions Mm -hmm. right so because you know what they say if you're not at the table you're on the menu right (laughs) so like it's allowed me to be in the room to be in a position to help other people of color right to help other black people right go on and achieve and do the things they want to do so um you know, I, 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 I always say go for it. You know, um, you know, please, you can post my information and let people know they can contact me if they have questions about the, you know, the experience. Definitely. But, you know, go for it. it it's, it's tough, but the time is going to pass anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hopefully you have something to show for it. Absolutely. Well, once again, I thank you for your time. My name is Malik mm-hmm. Blade, and this has been the Whole Brother Mission Podcast. Mm-hmm.